All right. Good morning, Venture Christian Church. I'm looking around and I'm seeing who the good Midwestern hardy stock are. A little bit of snow is not going to get in the way of you coming to church. I'm so grateful to see you today. I'm also grateful to see some of you are joining us online today. And listen, I just said that, but I also, I get it. I'm glad that you're with us in worship today as well. So, hey, we're uh, walking our way through this series. We're saying leadership is lauded. Following is underrated, but following is exactly what he's calling you to do. It's a series on following. This is probably important, especially to those who would call ourselves a born leader. Lean in today. There's something in what we're talking about today, especially for those of us who are born leaders. How many of you are baseball fans? Let me see your hands. We're still a couple of months away from uh, spring training. We can kind of wishfully think about that looking out the window today. I'm not a baseball fan. I mean, I, I, I liked to play baseball as a kid, but I don't really follow it as an adult. I'd rather play than watch. But a couple of names from my childhood when I was playing baseball jump off of the page at me today. Tommy Lasorda, how many of you recognize this name? He was a manager, the L.A. Dodgers back in the day. Uh, he coached another, here's a name, a big name, Oral Hershiser. How many of you know that great pitcher? Tommy Lasorda tells a story about a young pitcher with raw talent, timid, but with a wicked arm, he could throw a laser pitch, Oral Hershiser. He wanted to call something out of this young man, though. He saw the timidity in his pitching style, and so he gave him a nickname that was intended to pull something out of Oral Hershiser. You know what he started calling him? Bulldog. And that nickname stuck with him through his, I think, 18-year career in the majors. This gets at a little bit what we're talking about today. Welcome to week three of First Follower. We're looking at key characters in our story. The story that God has been telling that we step into today, we're also first followers, but we're looking at the first followers literally of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the character Andrew, one of his first followers. What does Andrew have to teach us about what it looks like to be a first follower today? Today, we're leaning into his first follower, Simon Peter. I had several conversations with some of you in the lobby last week, and you were, you were telling me, uh, oh, I, I recognize, I, I resonate with Andrew. Some of you even told me, you know, I resonate with Peter. Some of you were picking different names of the disciples as you were sharing that with me. The title of today's message is Dare to Follow, because I think Peter is the kind of guy who would dare you to do things, but I think he was also the kind of guy who could not back down from a dare. He was a bold first follower. Let me say it this way. Simon Peter was the ace of first followers. Ace. I had so much fun this past week. By the way, thank you. Uh, your giving fuels incredibly ministry, uh, incredible ministry globally. It also pays my salary. 
and the salary of our staff team here at Venture. My family is very grateful for that. Thank you. I need to confess to you this past week, I spent about 15 minutes of the time that uh, I was serving the church this week in my office kind of giggling. I was looking for just the right nickname to give Peter. I looked for type A personality. I looked for what's a good nickname for that. And I came up with this long list. Uh, there were some websites that pushed some ideas here for an alpha male. What would you nickname them? Name them? Iceman was suggested. I giggled at that. Hammer. How about stud? Viking. Wolf, I guess, volcano, alpha male, stallion. This one had me scratching my head, Skittles. I don't know what that means. Firecracker, captain, big guy, Tarzan. I settled on ace. Peter was the ace, the alpha male of the original 12 first followers. Notice that the Lord, Jesus, gave him another name. This is in Luke chapter 6, verse 14. Simon, this is his birth name, whom he also named, he being Jesus, named him Peter. Now, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, maybe you grew up in Sunday school, you know that this word Peter, it's a Greek word. There's all kinds of imagery that is poured into this word. There's even a space in Jordan you could go to that's called Petros. It's this city that's carved out of solid rock. Why? Well, Peter, the Greek word Petros, literally means rock. So when Jesus is looking at Peter, he's literally saying, and he calls him Petros, Peter, he's saying, you're, you're a rock. It's so fitting that we're studying the apostle Peter, Simon Peter, today, because there was just this, uh, this discovery. Archaeology has just discovered, so it's an amazing find. We don't think that there are images, or you walked in today not knowing that there are images that go back even to the first century. Do you know they just discovered a picture of the apostle Peter, what he looked like? Check this out. Some of you have been following Dwayne Johnson from his days in the WWE before he became an actor. Today, we're actually looking at the metamorphosis of Dwayne Johnson to The Rock from Simon to Simon Peter, The Rock. His name is significant because it's almost as if Jesus is saying, let me pick up a chisel. Let me pick up a mallet, a hammer, and let's smooth over some of the rough edges. Peter, you're probably a born leader. I mean, there's some raw abilities, some raw talents there, but there's some work that needs to be done. I'm moving you from Simon to Peter. Simon Peter. And Peter submits to this. You know, when Jesus first met him, Peter probably could have been have met the description of the book of James, James chapter 1, verse 8, which talks about a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. That's where Jesus met Simon. At the end of the story, we find Simon Peter. There's meaning behind a name. We're going to get to that here in a minute. But before we do that, I want to set the stage first. I want to, if we can, kind of zoom out just a little bit. Later in the message, we're going to double tap. We're going to zoom in. We're going to focus on the apostle Peter, Simon Peter. But before we do that, let's take a step backwards, and let's look at the, the larger cast of characters. There are 12 disciples. Jesus calls them out, and he names them apostles. 
not just disciples. There's a large group of disciples, but he zeroes in on 12, and they're also called apostles. You could find a list of these cast of characters found in four different places in Scripture. I want to read one of them right now. I'm in Luke chapter 6, verse 12 and following. And as we read through this, look at this list of names. Notice even the order that they appear. That's actually significant. The first in every one of these four lists is the guy we're looking at today, the Apostle Peter. So one of these, those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God before he makes this important decision, and he's selecting 12 disciples that will also be known as apostles, his inner circle, if you will. He spends a lot of time in prayer. We could preach a whole series on that right there. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, a larger group of people, and from that group he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Let's read the list, shall we? Simon, whom he named Peter. That's a parenthetical note later. Looking backwards, this is who he's become. He starts as Simon. His brother Andrew, we looked at Andrew last week. James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus. Simon, another Simon, who is also called the Zealot. Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, by the way, Judas Iscariot is mentioned in three of those four lists. In the book of Acts, he's omitted because, well, he did not finish well. Actually, I've got a graph I want to show you. Four places that this is mentioned in Scripture. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts. We're going to unpack this more in later weeks. But right now, can I just point out, there's basically three groups of four here. You've got Peter leads the first group of four. Philip leads the second group of four. James, son of Alphaeus, is kind of the leader of the last group of four. There's some different names that are mentioned there. Some of this is because there's several different languages, and there's some other nicknames that are mentioned. It's all the same people. Some of them are just called by different names. Peter heads the first list. Philip heads the second list of four. And James leads the last list of four. That first four seem to be tied together as a group. You've got Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. They're all four fishermen. A couple of brothers in that group. There's an inner circle. Jesus spends a lot of time with that group of people. I want you to notice that Simon Peter is in the spotlight today. Before we focus on that, let's make a couple comments about this list of people, though, shall we? If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. Note this. Jesus' first followers, this list that we just looked at, it's not a homogenous list. You know what that means? Homogenized milk, kind of all condensed together. His first followers are not homogenous. What does this mean for us today? Listen, I'll put it this way. Our subculture, the church... Each individual church becomes its own unique subculture, right? It should not be one size fits all. Why? Because Jesus' list of first followers is anything but one size fits all. His first followers are not homogenous. They had several things that were different in that list. Let me suggest a couple to you today. First of all, they they had different personalities, Actually, vastly different 
personalities. You study the Enneagram, you study personality profiles, you study like the DISC temperament analysis or the Myers-Briggs temperament analysis test. These guys would have been all across the spectrum. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Peter, who we're looking at today, was eager. He was aggressive. He was bold. He was outspoken. He had a habit of maybe inserting his foot into his mouth before he engaged his brain. He's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got the apostle John. Actually, Peter and John spend a lot of time together in the book of Acts. But in the first 12 chapters of Acts, while they're constant companions, there's no words of John recorded. There are a lot of Peter, right? Opposite ends of the personality spectrum. Who else? Well, you've got a guy named Bartholomew. He's also known as Nathaniel. He was a true believer. He was the kind of guy that said, hey, I believe, and I choose to follow. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. I mean, kind of an eager guy. But on the other opposite end of the spectrum, you've got a guy that's even recorded to us. There's a parenthetical note in Scripture. Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas, right? I'm ready to do this thing, Jesus. Let's make it happen. Thomas is from the show me state. He's from Missouri. He says, prove it to me. Show me. I need to see it to believe it. These are opposite personalities, right? All across the personality spectrum. Listen, first followers should include both the fast and the furious and still waters run deep. You've got Peter. You've got Bartholomew on one end of the spectrum. And then you've got John. You've got Thomas on the other end of the spectrum. First followers aren't homogenous. They have different personalities. We need to recognize this in the church. We need to lean into one another's strengths. Peter is very valuable in the early movement, but so is John. So is Thomas. And the same is true today. First followers aren't homogenous, not just in personality type, but check this out. Can I preach just a little bit? They're different in political persuasion as well. This is something probably that the church should take note of. There are different politics that are represented in this group of first followers. On one end of the spectrum, you've got Matthew. Oh my goodness. Some of you were here the first week when our discipleship pastor, first week of this year, when Jake Harp preached a message and he zero focused in on Matthew. And we watched that video clip from The Chosen. When Matthew is called into service to Jesus, he's a tax collector. On one end of the spectrum, you've got this guy who had sold out to the occupying army. That was his politics. On the other end of the spectrum, in the same group of people, there are multiple Simons mentioned in Scripture. In this list that we just read through, you've also got Simon the Zealot. That's an opposite end of the political spectrum from Matthew. Hey, listen, we've sold out to the occupying army, but Simon the Zealot, he was a part of this group of people who were walking around looking to overthrow the Roman government. Actually, there's a group of zealots that were literally called the Sicarii, the dagger men. They walked around with a knife in their robe to take back what was theirs, even by violence. You talk about two opposite ends of the, sp the political spectrum. That's who's represented in Jesus' first followers. Stop and think about this. How many places can you go? I feel like the older I get, the less I am around really diverse groups of people. In high school, maybe that's the last time I was really around a true cross-section of culture. 
Even high schools aren't really diverse because they're put together, public high schools, by neighborhoods that they reside in. I think maybe it's the state fair, probably not. I think the, the only place I can go today that really is a true cross-section of culture might be the BMV waiting room. <laughs> When's the last time you were there, right? And you look around, you see a Stepford housewife, soccer mom, maybe sitting next to somebody who doesn't look like that person. You've got white collar sitting next to blue collar. Maybe it's the true divider of culture. We make this statement. I think the church, I think the church should look more like the BMV waiting room. We should. Jesus' first followers look like that. There are, there's a wide range in the spectrum there. And does the church, does the church of today reflect that? We should lean more into that. First followers, let me put it this way, should include... Let's go, Brandon, and greedy fascists. What? I spent some time this past week in my office. Again, thank you for my salary. About 15 minutes of it this past week was giggling over that. I literally wrote that into my notes, and I was like, am I going to say that? Am I going to say that out loud? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. I walked around the office at one point and said, hey, somebody help me, because the whole week I had this one figured out, kind of a pejorative that, we would, that Republicans might use toward Democrats. And I kept asking, I had it written in my notes, just kind of a blank here. Help me with a pejorative that maybe Democrats would aim at Republicans. Some of you know where this comes from. I'm going to comment on that here in just a second. I, uh, I spent some time, though, looking for these slang terms, and I, I, I screenshotted some of my study. Here's a list of pejorative terms. This is the urban thesaurus. So you put in Republicans. What are some of the ways that culture looks at this? Rush Limbaugh pops up here. Sarah Palin pops up. Constitutionalists. Wrong wing. That's kind of clever. Peachtree City, I have no idea what that means. I typed in the word Democrat, and there was a whole list of other pejoratives that show up here. Democrat, that's interesting. Stupidity, I thought that was interesting. Republic assault, I don't know what that means. But what I do know is this. Man, our culture is divided. And isn't it feeling more and more divided these days? Let me make a strong statement. It is so important to recognize the truth of this. Lean in on this. No, no political party or ideology owns first followers. It didn't in Jesus' day. You had a dagger-wielding right-wing or left-wing, I don't know, extremist, serving together with Jesus, somebody who is sold out to the occupying army. No political party or ideology owns first followers. Why? Because when we make a decision to make Jesus Lord of our lives, we serve the king of a different kingdom. And we have to be so careful not to let any ideology own us or get in the way of that truth that we have a king. His name is Jesus. He's the king of a different kingdom. I think this is something the church needs to wrestle with. We have two pastors in our church who serve. They've got like this marketplace ministry where they go out and they drive school buses. I love that about our, of our pastoral staff team, two of them in particular. I'm, I'm mentioning that because this story, well, it could have come from either one of them. Hang with me. One of them was serving 
out driving a school bus for a Christian high school. I'm not going to tell you which one. And this pastor was telling me not long ago that they were driving along and they heard chanting from the back of the bus, let's go, Brandon. Over and over again, let's go, Brandon. Some of you know the story behind that. You know that there's a real pejorative term in there, that that's a veiled reference to, to a sitting president of the United States. I cringe at that. And I cringe at the idea that our Christian subculture, listen, I'm not picking at teens, kids, but they learned that somewhere. I wonder how much of that's being spoken at home. And it makes me nervous. It makes me nervous about our subculture. It makes me nervous about our influence in culture at large. If we allow ourselves to be painted into a corner of a political ideology, do we miss the opportunity to shine Jesus' light? We serve the king of a different kingdom. First followers rise above that low-brow group think. Jesus' first followers did some amazing things to influence God's kingdom spread here on earth. Why? We should wrestle with that question. Why? What was their motivation for doing this? Why? Well, they met Jesus. They walked with him for three years, and it, it rocked their worlds. It changed their worlds. They saw him dead, buried, resurrected. They met Jesus, and everything, everything else paled in comparison. Where's our allegiance? We serve the king of a different kingdom. That being said, first followers didn't finish where they started. Jesus started with more of a ragtag group of people, and as they spent more and more time with him, oh my goodness, we see an evolution of change in their lives. The same is true of the apostle Peter. For the rest of our time together, I want to double-click. I want to zero in on this particular character in the story, and let's see some ways that Jesus chisels away at the rough edges of his life, the, where Simon becomes Peter. And actually, Simon hands the chisel. He hands the hammer to a master carpenter, and he says, do your will in my life. Change me. Redeem me. Fix me. Transform me. Remember, the Lord gave him Another name, Luke chapter 6, verse 14 puts it this way, Simon, whom he also named Peter. Peter is the rock. When you see Scripture, can I just encourage you, oftentimes there is a signal on what is happening in Peter's life in that particular moment. What Jesus calls him in that moment has some significance. Is he calling him Simon? Is he calling him Peter? For example, I have five kids, and uh, we adopted four of our kids, and when we did that, we got to rename them. Listen, when I'm talking to Micah or I'm talking to Eric, it's very different when you hear me use their middle name. If you hear Micah James or you hear Eric Dakota, somebody's in trouble, right? Moms and dads that are expecting, can I give you just a little bit of coaching here? Be so careful. You need to be careful when you're choosing the first name of your child. I was a youth pastor at the time. We were picking names, and I literally put together a focus group, a bunch of junior high kids, and I said, all right, here's the name we're considering. Just mess with it. How can you tease? Because this has to pass the sniff test for middle school, right? How can you mess with this name? And let's steer away from the ones that are really going to be prone to a lot of teasing. 
It's so important that you pick a good middle name that rolls off the tongue as well. That worked with several of our kids. Our daughter, Kimberly Mia Carice Killebrew, we gave her two middle names, and it just doesn't roll off the tongue when you're mad. So be so careful. You want to pick a name that rolls off the tongue. We see this happen sometimes when Jesus is speaking to Peter. There's this movement from Simon to Peter. When Simon is referenced in Scripture, oftentimes it's the open mouth, insert foot dude. It's the I looked and then I leaped dude. He becomes Peter, the rock, the one that Jesus looked at and said this in Matthew 16, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the very gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And I just wonder, I wonder if... uh, The context matters. Oftentimes when Jesus is speaking to Simon, there's two different categories of when that term is used. First of all, it's his legal name. Like I went to the doctor this past week, and I was about halfway through filling out the form. I was seeing a brand new doctor, and uh, they had me fill out some stuff. And I got halfway through, and I realized, oh, for him, I'm actually not Stan. I'm actually Stanley. And so I had to go back and amend my form because I have a legal name. When we see Simon show up in Scripture, oftentimes it's, it's a legal name, like Simon's house is referenced. When it speaks of his mother-in-law, it, it, it's Simon's mother, or wife's mother, rather, his mother-in-law. Luke chapter 5 describes his business, his fishing business, and it mentions one of the boats, which was Simon's. His name would have been on the deed. Business partners, James and John, were described as partners with Simon. Legal terms, right? It's also used, though, sometimes as his immature follower name. When I say Micah James or Eric Dakota, when Jesus looks at Peter and there's a Simon and a Peter, when he calls him Simon... Well, this means there's some immaturity on display. For example, in Luke chapter 5, there's this fishing story. And the impulsive young leader, Simon, he basically says, hey, listen, we've been fishing all night. We're pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps here. Thank you very much. He's a natural-born leader, and he's referred to as Simon. Notice, though, if you read in the same story, just a few verses later, this is what it says. It says, when Simon Peter saw it. Jesus said, hey, why don't you do this thing? Here's a strategy for fishing. And the bold leader Peter, Simon, was obedient. He became a first follower, and he did what Jesus said. When he saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He falls down. He's he's worshiping, and he's described as Simon Peter. Jesus, oftentimes, when Simon is failing, like Luke chapter 22, verse 31, says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He's kind of rebuking him there, and he's using that name, Simon. How about this in Mark? Uh, Mark writes this in chapter 4, verse 37. Jesus came and found them sleeping. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. He had one job. He was supposed to stay up and pray. For Jesus. And he said to, Mark calls him Peter, but look what Jesus calls him. Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation? Come on, man, I was counting on you. I need you to pay attention. And he says the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. 
Oftentimes, Peter needed rebuke or admonishment. And when he did this, when he needed this, Jesus referred to him as Simon. And it might have reached a point where Peter cringed, and he might have been thinking, hey, Jesus, would you please just call me Rock? And and Jesus might have replied, listen, I'll call you Rock when you act like it. I wonder if this stirred up an identity crisis inside of Simon Peter. You ever have an identity crisis caught between who you are and who you know that God is calling you to be? From Simon to Peter. Could it be an identity crisis or could it be that we see in Scripture recorded here a movement? A movement from beginning to where he ended. We've already established that Peter was the leader of that group of early disciples. Look in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. It says this, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter. That word first is significant there. It doesn't just mean first listed in order, but it means first like chief, like the leader. Simon is a born leader. This is the beginning of his ministry. This is the language that's used. But I want you to notice at the end of his story. We have recorded in Scripture two letters that Peter wrote. You've got 1 Peter and you've got 2 Peter. At the beginning of that second letter, in Greek, true Greek form, he signs the beginning of the letter with his signature. Notice the way he describes himself. Simon Peter. He's embracing his name. This is who my Lord named me. And this is who I am. I'm a servant. This natural-born leader, he had spent a lifetime of letting Jesus kind of chisel off the rough edges. This born leader is saying, I'm a servant, and I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's who I am, beginning to end the movement from Simon to Peter. God took rough, a rough man, raw material, and he transformed him into the leader of the early church. The last time Jesus calls Simon, Simon, is in John chapter 21. Perhaps you remember this story. Peter had just denied Jesus three times. The rooster crowed. Jesus reinstates him to ministry, and he refers to him as Simon, son of Jonah, and then three times, do you love me? And Peter replies, yeah, yeah, I do. And at the end of that, Jesus gives him a call, a charge to ministry. Feed my sheep. I'm entrusting you with incredible things. We see in Peter's life three key elements that go into the making of a bold first follower. We see the right raw material. We see right life experiences. And we see right character qualities. If you resonate with the Apostle Peter, perhaps you're a born leader, you're a type A personality, you might want to write some of these down. This might motivate you to action this week. First of all, here's the raw materials of a rock first follower. Are leaders born or are leaders made? In Peter's case, yes. Yes, they are. Here's some of the raw materials that go into who he is. Inquisitiveness. He's often the one that's asking the question of Jesus. Curiosity is crucial to leadership. And Peter, he demonstrates that. He often asked, who do we need to forgive? He asked, about what kind of a reward are we going to receive for following you, Jesus? He asked Jesus over and over a series of questions, and he displays inquisitiveness. 
He also shows this. These are raw materials in the life of the Apostle Peter. Initiative. Not only is he the one asking the questions, but oftentimes when Jesus asked a question, Peter was one of the first to answer. He asked a question, who do people say that I am? Notice Jesus' reply in Matthew chapter 16. Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. He had an answer to the question. He wasn't just inquisitive. He showed initiative. Here's another one. Raw material of a guy like the rock was involvement. True leaders are always in the middle of the action. This is the case in the apostle Peter's life. We see him from an early age here. I love this moment. When Peter steps out boldly in faith, you know the story I'm talking about, when he steps out of the boat and he walks on water, he gets a bad rep in that story because he took his eyes off Jesus and he fell beneath the waves. But I think it's important to note, there's 11 of his buddies sitting back in the boat and they never took a step out of the boat. Peter stepped out onto the water. And I love, this is this moment when leader becomes follower, and follower is also a leader. Let's read this text together. Matthew chapter 14, verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me, tell me to come to you on the water. Peter is saying, listen, I need you to command me to do this. If you do that, then I have to do it. Command me to step out onto the water. And then we read, this is exactly what Jesus does. Come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. This might be part of the reason why we need to do a series like First Follower. We need to be reminded that leadership is lauded. Following is underrated, but following is exactly what he's called you to do. Even if you're like Peter, a born leader. Not just raw materials, but there are some experiences of a rock first follower. Here's three of them. He spends three years having this experience of tests and difficulties. Listen, bold first followers tend to be impatient. Bold leaders tend to say, ready, fire, aim. Are you bold? Are you impatient? Maybe you need to be reminded today that God is not finished with you yet. It took Peter three years of intense discipleship following hard after Jesus. And maybe you need to be reminded today that you're running a marathon. You're not in a sprint. God is not finished with you yet. I, I got some coaching my first year of ministry. I stepped into my first church just ready to change the world. And my senior leader, my senior pastor, that church. He looked at me one day and he said, Stan, you can do a whole lot less. You can get a whole lot less done in a year than you think you can. I needed to hear that. Stop trying to change everything all at once and conquer the world all at once. You're not supposed to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But then he said this, and I thought this was great coaching. He says, but God can do a whole lot more through you in three years than you think is possible. And I look back on that five-year first ministry run, and I say, yay, God, there were some pretty cool things to look back on there. Rome wasn't built in a day, right? God's not finished with me yet. Three years, Peter follows hard after Jesus. There are some hard experiences that happen during those three years that are recorded for us in Scripture. Listen, Peter left it all. He left his entrepreneurial business, and he stepped out in faith to follow a homeless man. 
Three years of this, Jesus describes himself as this. He said, birds have nests and foxes have dens, but the son of man, this is his favorite designation for himself, has no place to lay his head. What did that mean for Simon Peter? I bet it means that the rock didn't always have a feather pillow to lay his head down on at night. He had some painful experiences as well. Like this one in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus turned and looked at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Wow. I was at an event here at the church not long ago with some of our senior saints and from across the room somebody hollered out, hey Stan, I just noticed on your name tag, your name is only one letter off from Satan. Stan, Satan, well, I I think you're right. Ouch. But can you imagine being Peter and having your Savior look at you and say, well, call him Satan. Through painful experiences, even being rebuked by the Lord, he had to learn that he was vulnerable to Satan. This strong leader, Peter needed to be reminded that... um, Satan could still get in his path and mess with him. Bold first followers, are you having some painful experiences? Are you feeling God's discipline? Well, remember, God disciplines those that he loves. I think it's fascinating in our English language. The word disciple and the word discipline is separated just by two little words, or two little letters, rather. Maybe, maybe just maybe we need to put some discipline back in disciple. Especially if you're running out in front of God. He disciplines those that he loves. Where does Simon Peter end up? We see some character qualities that emerge as God chisels away the rough edges in his life. Let me share just three of you, three of them with you right now. There are so many more, but let me share with you three. First of all, we see him submitting. A bold first follower, he submits. And as we look at the end of his life, we look at First and Second Peter, he writes about some of these character qualities at length. Let me show you right now, First Peter chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Do you think that maybe this was a hard-won lesson by the apostle Peter? I do whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who uh, do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Let submission lead, not your own boldness. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. That's pretty strong submission, right? Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters. Submission. Not only those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. Submission. I suspect this was a hard-won lesson that Peter learned. How about this one? Restraint. He was a brash, young leader. In the movement from Simon to Peter, he learns restraint, and he speaks about this toward the end of his career. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving for you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
Remember, he's the leader. We're first followers. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. I bet that was a hard lesson for Peter to learn. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may die to sins. Submit to him and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Don't punch back. This is quite the movement of the disciple who jumped up and cut off somebody's ear with a sword in a moment of just response. He shows restraint, especially toward the end of his life. And how about this one? Courage. Oh, we see incredible courage in Simon. We see bridled courage, though, that God uses in some amazing ways toward the end of his life in Peter, the rock. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says it this way, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance, he's reminding his followers, listen, we're going somewhere here. Take heart. Have courage. God-sized courage that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is, is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. He's speaking to a group of persecuted Christians. He's saying, hang on. We're going somewhere with this. Take heart, have courage. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor. When Jesus Christ is revealed, he's saying, hold on. There's this movement from born courage to battle one courage. From rash courage that would cut off a guard's ear to the kind of quiet courage facing death whose story gets whispered across an empire. Listen, Peter, the apostle Peter, might have done just as much through his courageous faith in his death as he did through his life. Last week I told you how Andrew died. This week it would be good for us as we land the plane to revisit how Peter, in fact, died. Last week we talked about how Andrew was nailed, or rather uh, tied to the cross instead of nailed. That gave him time to talk and to share his faith with people as they were walking past. He was a man of few words. He became the apostle who was evangelizing from the cross. Well, Simon Peter How did his life end? Well, Jesus told him that he would die as a martyr. The scripture, though, doesn't record how Peter was crucified or how he died. All all records of the early church, though, say that he he was, in fact, crucified. One of the early church historians, Eusebius, he cites the testimony of another historian, Clement, who says that Peter was crucified. Before he he, he was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. And as he watched her being led to her death, Clement says, Peter called to her by name saying, quote, remember the Lord. Have courage. Have faith. Then when it was, when it was Peter's turn to die, he pleaded actually that he be crucified upside down. 
Because this bold first follower, even in his death, he wanted to submit to the lordship of Jesus. He said he wasn't worthy to die as Jesus died. So don't crucify me upright, he said. Nail me with my head down on the cross. Peter's whole life maybe could be summed up in this phrase in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. His challenge to the followers was to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not in your own strength, but in his. This is exactly what Peter does with his life. As we wrap up our time today, can I simply, can I, can I give you a challenge? As we look at the life of the Apostle Peter, as we think about this concept of being a first follower, we talked about nicknames that he was named at the rock and how he handed a chisel to the master carpenter and he said, do something, do something in my life. Smooth off the rough edges. And even in the name that Jesus called him, this nickname, we see reflected in there the things that Peter needed to work on. Let me just ask you this. What is he calling you today? What nickname, perhaps, would Jesus give you today that's maybe an area of your life that you need to work on? Maybe some of us need to be reminded that he's calling us to be, well, there's all these titles in Scripture, little nicknames that were given all through Scripture, like this one. How about the word beloved? Maybe today you need to be reminded that you are loved by God. You'll never work your way to heaven. You can't do enough right things, your acts of righteousness. That's not going to earn you a place because he loves you, and he already does. Maybe you need to be reminded of this nickname, that you're, you're a treasure. Oh, you have value. You have worth. Another place in Scripture would call you a masterpiece, the, gra- the crowning glory of God's creation. Maybe you need to be reminded of this. He calls you my child, your sons and daughters of the Most High God. Maybe, maybe this one. He calls you friend. In Scripture, we see recorded in John chapter 15, I call you my friends. But then there's a conditional statement right after that. If, if you do what I command... Maybe for you today, you need to recognize that you are a friend of God, but there's a conditional statement there because he actually wants you to do what he's called you to do. Maybe there's something in that that's application for you this week. Or maybe you simply need to be reminded that you are a follower first. And today's challenge, this week's challenge, is to not get in front of him. He leads. You follow. Would you stand up with me? I want to send us out of here today with a prayer of commitment. Would you bow with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a study of scripture that yields truth. We thank you for those first followers, what they have to tell us about what it means to be a follower hard after you. This week, as we lean into what you've called us, we lean into our nicknames. You lead, we choose to follow.